you take your life and you consume it upon yourself, it's kind of like eating the seed. But if you take your life and you plant it in the soil of serving others, then your life has so much more potential to grow and to multiply. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. Welcome back to another episode of How to Fail Successfully. My name is Matthew Carrier, and I'm so excited that you're joining me today. This episode is going to be incredible. I've been sitting on this one for a few weeks, and I'm excited to share it with you today. While doing some work at a local coffee shop, I started a conversation with a gentleman sitting across the table from me, and it wasn't but a couple minutes into the conversation I asked him to join me on this podcast. So here he is. Today, Josh McLeod will be sharing his journey from sitting in a courtroom as a legal consultant to standing in Sudan with thousands of dollars of camera equipment after being dropped off and left by a Russian aircraft. Are you intrigued? (laughs) Josh was a great storyteller and provides incredible feedback on how you could both be creative and run a successful business. So here's my conversation with Josh McLeod. Enjoy. Thank you for joining today. It's a delight to be here. I appreciate you having me on. What are you working on today? Yeah, so I have a, um, a business consultation firm. I, I teach business owners how to grow businesses and then also have several nonprofit organizations that have started over the years. So um, in our, our mission statement in the, in the business for profit is we equip business owners with the teaching, training, and tools necessary to cultivate health. Uh, and accelerate growth. So that's called growability. And then in the nonprofit arena, I have several artistic initiatives. So one of those is called Instruments of Joy, where we give away musical instruments to aspiring musicians in the developing world who can't afford them. That's awesome. And then uh, I have another one called Picture the Nations, where we go on photo giving trips. Where hold we... on, hold on. I, this is what I love. This is why I wanted you to come on. <laughs> I absolutely love this whole thing. But sorry, continue. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Picture the Nations is is the second uh, initiative that we have where uh, we, we go on photo giving trips where we basically we give away photographs. We're not p- taking photos, we're giving photos. So we go out and shoot portraits in the developing world and then we give the pictures to the individuals. And then what we do is we create a coffee table photo book per country. So we just finished our Haiti project. We've got, we did three trips with photographers to Haiti, and then we sell the books for $27, and we give away $17 from each book sale to organizations that fight poverty in the country where the photos were made. So really excited about, yeah, that. And then the third initiative I have is called Media Change, where we do charitable video production for organizations that fight poverty in the developing world just to tell their story and help get the word out and things like that you have one for-profit yeah three non-profits yeah how many kids do you have eight i have eight children (laughs) yeah we we learned uh you know we were told early when we when we got married that it it takes a village to raise a family so we made one (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I think we're done. Eight, it. eight is enough. There, eight is somebody enough. wrote that book, and, and I was like, oh, yeah, eight is enough. That, <laughs> no. Well, and that's why well, I wanted to point that out is that you are very generous with your time for coming on. Well, it's a delight. You know, obviously, you are a very busy, very busy man. And so let's kind of go back to the beginning. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming that you weren't you weren't always this successful, were you? Well, I, yeah, I don't, and that's, I guess that's what success, uh, it's a, I lo- that's why I loved your show. I was like, okay, what is success? Yeah. What is failure? You know, yeah. those are fantastic questions. Um, yeah, you know, so when I was 27 years old, you know, uh, actually, let me back up. When I was like 21, I married my wife and I went to go work uh, at her dad's company. And so they had a legal division at the company where they would help attorneys by doing video depositions, shooting video and and things like that. And I had a a background in sales and I had a background in computer technology. So what I ended up doing was I would help attorneys consolidate their case and then present their case to the jury. So I've always been a pretty good storyteller and you know taking complexity and simplifying it. And so what I in 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 several years, I mean my my income tripled. Uh, I had you know the company car. I hired like eighteen people. I had the lead article in the Nashville Bar Journal. You know considering courtroom technology. And we opened an office in Atlanta. I'm flying all over the country and I'm working with um, extremely, quote-unquote, successful individuals. But I didn't really pay attention to the top of the ladder. So I'm, I'm climbing the corporate ladder, but I'm forgetting to ask myself, like, what is this ladder even leaning against? Like, wh- so what happens if you get to the top? Like, what is there? And so I'm working with attorneys, you know, I mean, uh, one of our clients, you know, owned an island and a jet and another one of our clients owned a hundred cars. You know, he's got nine garages and a hundred cars. And uh, and and that that attorney actually said to me, you know, Josh, you're the best consultant ever. Like we've had all these people and you really helped us. And I went back to my hotel room and I'm like. He's gonna go buy more cars. Like, what? <laughs> what am I doing? And what? What I realized in in that whole season of my first career is there's like there's an interesting thing that can happen if you kind of are successful without purpose. So what happens is is that you first you want to make money. So making money is good. You know, money is a magnifier. So if you have more money, then you spend more money and you it just shows what you care about. You spend it. But if you're not careful, when you make more money, it starts to be it's like more it's like a math equation. Like, okay, I made money. And then what you want is power. Mm -hmm. You know, now I want to be I want to be in charge and I want to I want to work the system. And so what I saw in my career is I saw people who were successful with money, but then I saw people who were kind of transitioning into that like power thing. It's it's kind of interesting, you know, like in the in the in the Bible story in Genesis, like Satan tempts Eve with, you can be God. Mm-hmm. And so Eve's like, oh yeah, I want to be God. So it's like I've realized that I was working with a lot of people that were trying to be God and they're not and it, it they were miserable. So there, I, I've like saw people that had 
ridiculous amounts of wealth and they're miserable all the time because they're just power hungry and it's nothing is enough there's there's not an there's the, it has the next thing is there the next thing the next thing but there was so much emptiness and it scared me because I'm like okay this is the ladder that I'm climbing I've got some I've got some you know in my world I've got some small fame and I'm like but what happens when I get to the top of this and so I it, it scared me so I decided, oh, well, let me, uh, and what I ended up doing is I quit my job. I put in a three-month notice. Uh, I sold my house. I moved into an apartment, and wow. I started traveling into the developing world. I spent seven years in 20 countries on you know 30 trips studying global poverty and just really chasing. Uh, I was young enough where, that's when I was 27 I did this, and, and I was young enough to where if it didn't work out and I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't pay the bills by just going to serve people, then I'd just go back in the legal world and make more money and yeah. just be fine. Um, and what happened was is that my my kind of exposure to humanity just sort of exploded a lot of my idealism in success and what is success. Um, sorry, I, you didn't ask a question for a while. I've been, I've been rambling on my, no, 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 it's on my story. It's great. Uh, so I guess I wrote down before I came here, you know, what does what does failure look like? And I think in my first career, uh, I I was failing because I was chasing success to feel significant, mm. and I wasn't I wasn't winning at all costs, but I was winning at great costs. My my family was getting the leftovers of my energy. Wow! So the the people who were the most important to me. Uh, when it when it came push came to shove, really, that drive for feeling significant was fueling the energy for success. But to my wife and my kids, I'm already significant, mm. and I was just I had spent energy in the wrong place. Um, and that and I think the second thing, and I, I already said this in one sense, but failing to ask the question while climbing the corporate ladder, what is this ladder leaning up against? And it, what it was leaning up against was, you know, greed and power. <laughs> and so um, what I've discovered in my second career, which I also have failures in my second career, what I discovered in my second career was that intentionally serving people and intentionally, like, seeking God uh, really brought so much more... Uh, I would say contentment uh, it wasn't easier in a lot of ways it was harder but it, it wasn't failing in those in mm -hmm. those two ways so wow there's a lot that you just said <laughs> <laughs> what did your wife travel with you to these countries so um, when I started traveling I had three kids okay and anybody with three kids is, is like there's no way that three kids is too hard yeah <laughs> uh so she you know really she my wife so what happened with my wife she was happy because i wasn't as much of a workaholic mm -hmm. um unfortunately I, I can't say i wasn't a workaholic yeah i just was much less of a workaholic yeah. um but she was she's the kind of person she's been with me on two trips so i've been on like you know 
a dozen, <laughs> two of 27. 30, 40 trips. <laughs> okay, yeah. She's been with me on two. Okay. And when she went on those trips, she was like, yeah, that's exactly what you kind of told me about and yeah. stuff. So she's more of a, she's more of a homebody yeah. and happy in that, you know, it, I'm like, I have a, I have wanderlust and adventure and I, if there's not a scorpion in my, you know, room or there, you know, I'm, I'm not in, 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 imminent danger then it's kind of boring <laughs> but she's more like ah, oh, i like my house <laughs> i like my family scorpion, scorpion free <laughs> yeah scorpion free everything's good um so yeah so i guess what i'm trying to say is she didn't really travel with me on that yeah. uh she allowed me to do those things which is incredibly valuable to me, but she didn't do so discontentedly. Yeah. It wasn't like I'm just, oh, I'm going to leave you at home and go fly around. It's like, hey, there's an orphanage here. I can go make a video. We can raise a couple million and dollars. You, and you probably, she saw that all of that work is actually now for something good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, and I want to be careful to say, you know, I, I'm not saying attorneys are bad or I'm not saying, like, there's some amazingly wonderful, wealthy individuals and they're doing what they're designed to do. You know, they're, um, yeah, it's, you know, they, they love their, their craft and we yeah. need attorneys and doctors and lawyers and we need all of this stuff. What I, what I had to ask myself was, is this what I'm on the planet for? Like, is this what I'm designed to do? Am I, am I maximizing the potential of my gifts and talents or am I just doing what I can do? Like the difference between doing what you can do and doing what you should do. And what the risk was, if I moved into what I felt like I should do, I lose all the money. So do I do that anyway? And the answer is yes. You know, do what you're designed to do, you know. You kind of quickly glossed over the transition between the first and the second job. And so I want to know, though, what made you... What, so yes, you stepped away from from your job as a consultant. So yeah, consultant is that what the or, well, I was a is it like a litigation technology presentation consultant. Sure. So okay. we we would go from shooting your video and then putting that video in a computer, and then like so it's a difference of somebody reading from a transcript, like I said, yes, this was the yeah. thing to showing them on the video. No, I never signed the document. Then uh. put the, the guy over here, <laughs> put the photo up. Here's his signature, zoom it out. And then he's saying on video, no, I never signed the document. Then you're showing the document. It's like, that. Yeah. that's what sticks in the head gotcha. of the jury. So that's kind of what we did. What was the thought process to step away from that and go to these, these impoverished nations? Well, so... Um, Really, I was, uh, I was at, um, I was at, I was at church, and there was this missionary that came to church, and uh, you know, if you ever, if you're in, if you go to church, and there's like missionary day where the missionary comes, it's kind of like eh, you're like, eh, eh, <laughs> I'm not so sure yeah. this is gonna be a good day. Yeah. Well, this guy was a missionary magician. <laughs> so, like so, an actual magician? Like, you know, he was the missionary magician. That's yeah, awesome. so he's doing missionary magician tricks. That's awesome. But he said something that really, uh, he used the analogy of a watermelon seed. And he took a watermelon seed and he said, you know, where I'm, in the country where I'm a missionary, we, we eat the seeds, you know. And so he said to all the kids in the in the church, he said, okay, all you kids out there, what what is in a watermelon seed? 
and uh, and everybody's just kind of you know staring at him. And then one kid jumps up and says, "A watermelon." And he's like, "That's right." But then he took the watermelon seed and he ate it. And he said, "Well, what's in it now?" Nothing. And so he took another watermelon seed and he said, "Okay, what's in this watermelon seed?" And everybody's like, "A watermelon." And he's like, "Well, how many watermelons are in that watermelon seed?" And and so we're thinking about it, and really, one watermelon creates a thousand seeds, and then the seeds create more watermelons. So there's like millions of watermelons in a watermelon seed. So then he took that watermelon seed and he ate it. Uh, and then he he was he was preaching on this text that Jesus said. He said, "Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." And so what he said was, if you take your life and you consume it upon yourself, it's kind of like eating the seed. But if you take your life and you plant it in the soil of serving others, then your life has so much more potential to grow and to multiply. And so what I, when I heard that message, I thought, what am I doing in my career? Am I, am I using my watermelon seed, you know, the potential to impact, am I using it to feed myself or am I using it to impact others? And, uh, and so I told my brother-in-law that when I really make it big, uh, I'm going to start an organization called Watermelon, and I'm going to use all the gifts and talents, and I'm going to just use them to serve people just as soon as I'm a multimillionaire. So I, I went back to work. <laughs> a year later, I'm in a courtroom. I'm sitting, and I'm watching a guy on stand. He was a musical conductor. And I've, I've sat in thousands of hours of uh, depositions, thousands of trials, you know, just, just thousands of hours of people talking on trial and things like that. And I'm sitting there looking at this guy on stand and uh, I'm sitting there going, why do I wish that I was that guy? Because what happened is everything they threw at him it was a flawless response. Hmm. He didn't have any hidden doors. He didn't have anything. They asked him a question. He answered the question. He wasn't trying to wiggle out of anything. He was just, a, a, he, and I mean, I've sat there and I'm like looking for the time. Like, oh, here's where he's going to get uh -huh. trapped. Yeah. He didn't get trapped. So I sat there and I'm like, why do I wish that I was that guy? And, uh, and I'm sitting there and it was like, I realized the reason why I wish that I was that guy is because he was doing what he was made to do yeah. and I wasn't. So I go back to my hotel room that night and I'm like, God, what, what do you want me to do? Like, what am I called to? The next day, I got a call from my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law, he hadn't called me but like twice in the seven years that I've known him. You know, great dude, but you know, he's, he's not calling me. He calls me, he's like, Josh, I don't know what it means, but remember that missionary that spoke at our church like a year ago? Yeah, man, I, I felt like God told me to call you and remind you about the thing you were talking about with watermelon. So I don't know what that means, but uh, I just wanted to call you. Wow. So that was that yeah. was like that was actually the impetus of saying, okay. So then I I uh, that's you know a lot, lot of you know prayer and thought and things like that. But I I, I really I decided to follow God you know or, or take a risk or, or you know do whatever in, what was uh, the first what was the first spot that you went to so the first thing I did is I said okay God you want me to do this send me people you want me to serve and uh, so like a week later I got a call from uh, my brother in Pennsylvania 
And he's like, hey, I just met the director of Youth of Christ Honduras, and he serves like 10,000 kids a year, and uh, he's coming into Nashville. Can you pick him up at the airport and, <laughs> and drive him somewhere? So I was like, uh, there okay, <laughs> there, there you go. And so I did a video for them, and then once I had three, I said, okay, give me 10, and then I did 10, and then after that, I just... Um, you know, what I did was I just really just started serving everyone. So it was like, whoever, you know, if you're the barbershop that needs some kind of thing or something like that, I would just, if I had skills and I had money and I was like, well, let me just, let me just serve. So I like met this guy who was a medical student from Sudan and he wanted to go back to his village and you know, visit his family and, and do stuff. And so I was like, well, let's go to Sudan. <laughs> and I was, I, was as, I was as dumb as a box of rocks, man. I, I was like, uh, I was just stupid. <laughs> I mean, now, now that I know what I know, uh-huh, like yeah. I know what is actually safe to do and what is really stupid to do, then I didn't know. I just was like, well, you know, okay, I'll go serve people and... But um, now, do you mind sharing possibly one of your stories from from when you traveled to one of these countries? I, I'll tell you this. So, um, so one of the so I had an opportunity to go into Darfur, Sudan, and Darfur, Sudan. There's uh, an evil. It's it's sort of like right out of a movie, but it's real. Uh, there's an evil dictator, uh, Bashir who basically took and killed half a million people and displaced two and a half million people because they were in the area that he didn't want them to be. Evil dictator genocide. So if like you can imagine if half of Nashville was murdered and then half of the state of Tennessee was forced into a desert or die. Um, that's kind of what was happening in Darfur, Sudan with the genocide. So I had an opportunity to go into Darfur. And so I was going to go make a video for an organization called Persecution Project Foundation. And there was a project called 100 Wells Campaign. And so the idea was, let's go, let's tell a video, let's make a video, let's raise money so that we can give clean water, we can drill wells in the deserts where the people who have fled from this dictator have gone. So it's a war zone. And I'm, I was totally certain I was going to die. You know, like I had this, uh, you're like, you wake up and you're like, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Darfur and I'm going to die. But... I just felt like I was supposed to do it anyway, and I was afraid. So we we go into Darfur, Sudan, and the plane lands. And so we're flying like in, you know, you see a movie where there's like the red light and you're in this cargo plane and it's like we're, the commandos are going to drop into this thing. So I'm in this, I'm in this plane like this. So the Americans don't fly into Darfur, Sudan. So we hired the Russians <laughs> and we're in a Russian Antonov uh, aircraft with like $50,000 worth of relief and supplies into this desert. So the plane lands, we dump all the food out of the plane, and then the plane takes off. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> and I've got, I've got like $10,000 of video gear. You know, I got my Panasonic DVX-100A and I'm ready to shoot, you know. And I'm, but I'm just like, what in the heck am I doing? 
And I started interacting with kids and I was singing songs and we're dancing and singing and I'm, I'm seeing all these beautiful people. And I asked the kid there, I said, hey, tell me one of your songs. Like, I want to hear one of your songs. And the kids looked at me and he said, we don't have any songs. We forgot all our songs. Oh. And I was like, it, it just it just crushed me. And, I, and we, like, there's this veil of the reality that other people are living in. You know, I get, I get upset if my, if my mocha's not just hot enough. And there's a kid that's dying of thirst. Like, I'm watching kids drink out of mud puddles. Like, I'm seeing people literally starving to death. And uh, so what we did is we made a video. Uh, the organization, you know, 100 Wells Campaign, who raised uh, millions of dollars, put uh, 100, 100 wells in, and 100,000 people who were dying of thirst are now drinking clean water. Wow. And so as an artist, being able to use art to directly impact lives, it really, it would have, I, it wouldn't have happened if my if my potential my little watermelon seed was sitting on a in a courtroom you know i i had to jump out of kind of the comfort zone um to to jump into that and so so i also gave that community a guitar so with the instruments of joy so we've given out like 250 some instruments in 40 countries but when you are living in poverty or when you're living in a a really tough situation one of the most important things is beauty if you if you don't see beauty and you don't see creativity you lose hope you you have to know that there's something different and something better that I can reach out to, that I can go and and grab a hold of. So when you take and you give a guitar in a community like that, like we're really good at giving food and we're good at giving water, and hands down, we need to absolutely do that. But we also need to give hope. And we need to recognize that, hey, a bunch of people sitting around with nothing to do need a guitar, you know? Um, so that's one of the things where I, I really, I like... I believe in the in the power of art to bring hope and inspiration and help people reach you know out of poverty. So anyway, that's um, that's that's kind of what I'm about now. Wow. But now uh, there's a couple there's a couple other mistakes that um, <laughs> that I wrote it down about you know m- mistakes in my in my my second my my mis- missionary years. The first one is I failed by assuming what God really needed was a hot shot. Mm. You know, here I am. I'm, oh, poverty in Africa? Well, I'll take that down, man. All they need is me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. it took it took like one trip to realize like, oh, I can't really do much of anything. I can only do what I'm able to do. Yeah. Uh and the second one is I failed by doing a lot of talking without listening first. Mm. If you were going to go do any good in the developing world, the first step is to listen. Communities don't need specialists to come in and tell them how dumb they are and what they need to fix. Yeah. Communities need people to say, "Hey, what's working?" Yeah. What what are what do what you do love? You need? Yeah. What well, 
you got to be careful with what okay. you need because they'll just hand you. They'll just say, "Oh well, you know, oh you guys just uh, come in and try to fix." So I'm going to put up whatever, whatever you tell me to do, cause as long as you give me money. <laughs> gotcha. But really, finding out what is working, what are your values, what are your skills, and then building on that and saying, "Oh wow, you've you you're a really good." with your hands you're really good at this maybe i can give you a welding tool you know and then you can start a welding shop and hey there's all this scrap over here and you can you know make these things so like building upon what's already working in the community and empowering others getting underneath people don't need a handout they need a a, a hand up they need a they need you to get underneath them rather than try to pull them up to where you are. So that's what I, that's kind of what I've learned in, in the developing world. So after all of those trips, I became convinced that perhaps the most effective way to fight poverty is through small business development. And that's where I created the growability model that I have. It uses the analogy of a tree to to look through the fundamentals like your seed is your vision, mission, values, and your soil is your customer, and your trunk is your budget, and your roots are your community, and your branches come out of that, and you, you know, so the, that's, so what, what I, what I really wanted to do was use that model to train entrepreneurs in the developing world how to grow out of poverty. That's great. What I found is it works in, in the States. In the States as well, And so now I'm charging just stupid lots of money to clients to consult with them to help them grow their business and that's why I make money and then I spend it doing stuff like Instruments of Joy and Picture the Nations and training entrepreneurs in the developing world. Wow. That's amazing. There's so many questions I have and I don't know where to start. (laughs) So Joshua, you are an artist and an entrepreneur. How do you combine those two and still... <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I I think really it's about how to apply what you've learned. And artists need to learn to be effective, you know. Da Vinci needed to figure out how to mix paints before he's he's painting. And and entrepreneurs need to figure out equations to put those things together. So I try to consolidate my learning and be able to retain what I've learned in a way that I can apply it. So in order to do that, I created this model called GrowAbility. It's the GrowAbility model. There's 12 fundamentals that a business owner or a nonprofit leader should consider. And to create that model, I had to build a machine, a learning engine where I could consolidate information that I learned from other books. And I created these 12 buckets of information together. We we teach what we need to learn the most. So I needed to know how to grow an organization. So I started teaching people how to grow an organization. And then I realized pretty quick stuff that I understood and stuff that I didn't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah like <laughs> uh, what? In, in, I, sat down, I sat down with a business owner and I was showing him some models that I had created to market. And the business owner sat there and he said, hey, there's just some really great gimmicks you got there. Gimmicks. And I was like, gimmicks? I was like, what are you, what are you talking about gimmicks? These are really great. Like, these are going to work. And he said, yeah, you know, gimmicks aren't bad. He's like, gimmicks are good. But if you want to grow a business, you really have to focus on the fundamentals. So I, like, pick up my pencil, 
pick up my paper. I'm like, okay, great. Show me the fundamentals. He's like, no, you got you to go to business school. You've got to have, you know, you've got to have all of these books and stuff. But you, you've, you've got some really great gimmicks. You know, close the book, gets up, leaves the meeting. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, I am a gimmick salesman. And I don't really understand the fundamentals of business. And it really, it really bothered me. It like ticked me off, you know? So I was like, started reading books. And, you know, you read Good to Great and you read, you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and How to Win Friends and Influence People. And, but then I started really, those books were phenomenal for behavior, but they didn't necessarily give me structure. So I started reading like Peter Drucker and then I started reading like Albert Deming and I started building models. And I've, I've seen so much dysfunction in the litigation industry and all over the world that I, it was like I was hungry to, to create environments where people are not stressed out all the time. And so in the business world, there really isn't a good product that shows how everything fits together. There's tons of project products that share, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. So it's like most businesses and organizations kind of look like Frankenstein. They've got like a, a marketing arm that was plugged in over here. And then like, hey, here's this leadership goal setting over here. So let's plug in this arm. And then your torso is like the budget that you, you got from your accountant. And then your neck is like, so it's like, I looked around and I'm like, everything is Frankenstein. But businesses and organizations are actually organic. So that's where I came up with this idea of a tree and showing how your roots and your trunk and your leaves and your seed and your soil and it's, it's all connected. What that did is I created 12 buckets of information so that every single book that I read, I can take the bits of information out and put it within those 12 buckets. So instead of a book just being part of this vast sea of information, I'm able to categorize that information down into 12 different categories. Like, okay, what I just learned, is that about the season of life that I'm in? Is that about vision, mission, value? Is that about understanding my customer? Is that about building community? Is that about you know personal development? And that way I can take notes and keep them in a system where I can actually review and 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 put them into a place. So again, this is probably just That's totally brilliant. inappropriate no, for the, your, your interview, but but it. that what that did is it allowed me to learn without leaking. So I, I read a book right now. I mean, really most books that I read I mean, you read in a 300, 400-page book, and I get like one or two things out of it. But those one or two things find a home. And then I take that information and go out and I consult with people. And, and so what most of the business leaders and the owners that I work with, they don't have the buckets. So all of the information that they learn just flows out. So now I teach them how to create buckets, learning, be, be a learning engine. So I think success is, is to build your learning engine and always keep learning. That's half of success. The other half of success is never give up. 
life is hard. You know, it, it's what you do when you get punched in the face and you fall down. Like it's the first year of the litigation career, knocking on 400 doors, not getting a single sale and saying, well, dang, what am I going to do? I'll just well, I'll show up again. Uh, those two, the combination of those two things is I think what how success is built. Um, but the other side of that, I'm I'm obviously a high D on the disc profile. I'm I'm a go getter. I'm a, but the other part of success is being fully present. Like when I like right now, I'm not I'm not talking to myself while I'm talking to you. I'm just talking to you. I'm not having this internal thing of how does this impact me? How does this affect me? What is this? I'm fully present. Like. There's a quote by a guy named Jim Elliott that said, "Wherever you are, be all there." Yeah, and I, I in my in my in my first career, I couldn't be all there because I was too focused on success and significance. In my second career, in my missionary journey, I couldn't be all there because I was really focused on, am I just the best at what I do? And now I'm, I still wrestle with those things. But they're, they're things that pop up and I just smack them down. You know, now it's like I'm able to live and be where, where I am. That's where I can be. And that's, I think, the key to artistry. The key to artistry is creating, being fully present in your creation rather than letting the influence of success or significance or excellence or any of that be in the forefront it's just really be fully there in whatever it is that you're creating uh, i know i've got too many things that what success is so i'm sorry <laughs> no this is amazing this is worth a lot of money to get you to share <laughs> oh, no, all of this no, information no, so no. i'll have to buy you a coffee <laughs> i'll <so>. take it <laughs> <laughs> you, you, are you writing a book or is this a training yeah, manual so i already have a i already have a workbook it's 250 bucks you, you know growability.net come get, you yeah, know yeah, absolutely. Uh, but well, i've got one people... for for nonprofit i've got one for for profit and it's sort of like a guide that the number one reason why organizations fail is they don't know what they don't know so I wanted to create a, a book that has everything that you need to know without anything extra. It's the fundamentals. And I'm not telling you what to think. I'm teaching you how to think. So the book is all questions. Uh, it's, a, it's a guide for questions that you have to find an answer to. And so I recommend when somebody gets a book, go get a group of friends, sit down with this book, go through it, answer the questions for your organization, or, you know, if you can't, if, and if you're not able to do something, anything on, on your own, get a mentor, get a consultant, bring the book. It's a template for growing an organization. How do people find a mentor? Oof. So one, one of my mentors, uh, I heard somebody speak and I saw their reputation and uh, he, uh, the guy's name was Dick, right? So I, uh, I, after this presentation, I was like, that is who I want that guy to be a mentor. So I called him and uh, left a message on his phone, and he didn't call me back. <laughs> so a week later, I called him. I left a message on his phone. He didn't call me back. A week later, I called him. I left a message on his phone. He didn't call me back. The next week, I said, hey, Dick, it's Josh McLeod. 
just want to let you know, um, I really want to meet with you and uh, I, I think you're awesome. And I just, I'm going to keep calling every week. You know, you, you haven't told me not to. So I'm going to call and just until you meet with me. He called me back two minutes later and he said, hey, let's meet. Okay. And he said, you know, I have people contact me all the time. Everybody wants this. But I need to know that if I'm going to invest in someone, that they're actually going to to take my advice and run with it. So he mentored me for a, a year for wow. free. Wow. Which this is a guy that charges thousands of dollars you know, to do this thing every time, you know. And uh, so I think the way to find a mentor is... To knock on 400 doors. No, it's, it's to... <laughs> It's to be very intentional and strategic. It's like you kind of find a mentor that looks like the person that you want to be and and then pursue them, you know, and, 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 and realize that re- the better the mentor, the harder they're going to be to acquire. You know, if somebody is just saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is awesome. It's like, yeah, anybody, everybody wants to give free advice. Most of the time that it, it, it's, it's not worth anything. It's, it's, it's fun to talk and have ideas, but the application of the idea is a lot more valuable than the idea itself. So it, a mentor is somebody that doesn't just have ideas, they actually accomplish them. So when I talk to a mentor, I want to discover what did you do to accomplish your idea? And then will you invest in me if I jump through whatever hoops you tell me to do? That's how I, that's how I find mentors. What do you feel like your purpose is in this world? Yeah, so I have, uh, I have three life goals. Uh, one life goal is I want to train 100,000 entrepreneurial leaders in the developing world how to grow a business and fight poverty in their community. Another life goal is I want to give 10,000 musical instruments away to aspiring musicians in the developing world who can't afford them to bring hope in their communities. Uh, and the final one is I want to create a coffee table photo book through Picture the Nations for every country in the world. And give away a hundred million dollars to organizations in those countries that tangibly fight poverty. So I'm 40 years old and I've got 250 of the 10,000 instruments out. It's, uh, but I'm okay with that. It's a good start. I've got one photo book for Haiti created. <laughs> I've got 194 countries left. Uh, I've trained hundreds. I mean, uh, in the, I mean, I've I've impacted thousands of individuals with business training and things like that. I've personally trained hundreds, but uh, ultimately, I really need to develop other leaders in yeah. countries to do that yeah. to, to see that through. So, I, um, yeah, man, I'm trying to be all there every day and love on people and be present. You've already given us your definition of success. Yeah, are you successful? I think so. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I, I don't, I can't, I wouldn't change anything. I can't, um, I I feel like, um, I mean, I've realized, I I think part of success is realizing that I, I see, I see life more like surfing on a, a wave 
I spent so much of my life with a, and I read this somewhere, but taking a, a surfboard and just banging the water and trying to make a wave and thinking that somehow banging the surfboard on the wave is going to create success in my life. What really is successful, I think, is balance. And I see I see uh, two hands spread out in either direction, standing on the surfboard. One hand is spread out to discovering and chasing God and loving God. And the other hand is is spread out and, and reaching for serving others and loving people well. And just staying on that surfboard, balanced, is success. Um, I think uh, I think um, it's like this moment I say that, then I'm going to be like, I'll go have the worst day ever. And, uh, no, no, but no, 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 I, no. I I feel yeah. content. Like I'm Good. ready to. If I die today, I, I have no regrets for. You know, I'm uh, I wouldn't change anything. You know, it's like. And I can honestly say, I think success is living within your purpose, and that's yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. You know, as long as every day you wake up and you, like you said, you've got those two arms stretched out and you're riding the wave, I think you're successful. That's, I, I feel like that. And yeah. I guess the the better question would be to ask those that are around me whether I'm successful. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, I, I guess then I would go, I would respond to that by saying it doesn't really matter because it's, <laughs> what is your definition of success, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and are you happy with what you're doing in this life yeah 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 i guess i meant like do they feel loved do they feel yes yeah. well that's a different question <laughs> <laughs> well i don't want you to go b- before you let us know where can people find you or where can they find your book yeah um, just kind of talk about that real sure quick. yeah so um from the nonprofit side of things instrumentsofjoy.org okay. or picturethenations.org and uh, in the for-profit, it's growability.net. And I'm, I'm working on my little videos of training business leaders and awesome. having my little white background videos and stuff like that. So, yeah, picturethenations.org, instrumentsofjoy.org, and growability.net. Well, I hope that everyone enjoyed this episode uh, as much as I did. And uh, hopefully you have a pen and paper and you re-listen to this episode and you take notes because there's so much good information. Thanks. So. I'm very appreciative again. So thank you for joining. Hey, thanks for having me on. Delightful. Loved this one. Listen to this passage from the book by Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us closer to the wrong place faster. What wall is your ladder leaning against? Have you looked up in a while? In our ever-constant changing world, we must often look up and remember why we're climbing, whom we're climbing for, and what wall our ladder is leaning against. As creatives, we tend to find ourselves drifting in the ocean of opportunities, and more often than not, when we finally look up, the wall that we should be climbing is nowhere to be seen. So let's all take a moment to spend some time this week and look up at that ladder. Let me leave you with this story. A friend then 29 years old, told me he was giving up his career to enroll in medical school. But you'll be 36 when you're finished, I questioned. Isn't that too old? To which he responded, imagine how old I'll be then if I don't follow my dream now. In next week's episode, I have Billy Decker, mixer of 14 number one country singles. Billy shares with us the story of facing death and how at that moment he discovered what it truly means to live. Here's a clip. And I think I was given just a little glimpse into the secret of life. You got a, you have a bunch of late night conversations by yourself 
with your higher power when you're told you may not make it, you know? I firmly believe you gave me a little glimpse and, and what I took away from it was just be a good person to everybody. Help everybody. Don't waste a day because you may get up tomorrow and you may have cancer. That's next week.